Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. You can open your Bibles, please, to the second book of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5. That'll be our text this morning. If you did not bring um, a Bible with you, there will be a paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you, and we do really try to keep our eyes in a text of Scripture when we preach here at New Life, so it would really be helpful for you if you had a Bible in front of you, paperback Bible, the text is found on page 562, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. There's a writer named Wendell Berry who once said that the next great division in the world will be between those who want to live as creatures and those who want to live as machines. Now, that might sound crazy and ridiculous to you, but there is something called a transhumanism movement in our world today that seeks to use technology to liberate us from our human limitations. And this movement looks forward to what they would call a post-human future. And so they're considering the possibility, for instance, of downloading our brains into a computer so that we might achieve a kind of a, a digital immortality. Others are discussing what it might be like to splice together human DNA and animal DNA in order to enhance human abilities athletically, but also to enhance animals' intellectual abilities so that there can be this kind of mix between human and animal, human and machine. Uh, These are people who are looking to our future and imagining what it might be like for humanity as we use the benefits of technology. And so uh, it's a good question for us to ask as Christians, what, what does the future look like for human beings as we look to what is ahead? And so um, we are in a brief sermon series here during the Advent season called Being Human. During the Advent series, we are celebrating the fact that God took to himself a human nature in the person of Jesus. And there are great implications in that truth for what it is for you and me to be human. And so that's what we have been talking about during Advent. We began thinking of the dignity of being human, and then we moved to the tragedy of being human, and then last week we talked about the ethics of being human. This morning, we're considering the future of being human. When you think of the future, what do you feel like? When you look ahead to the future, what, what... What comes over you as you think of the human race's future or even as you think of your individual future? Are you filled with dread and anxiety and worry and fear? I mean, that's the way a lot of people feel when they look to the future. You look at studies that indicate that young people today do not expect to do better than their parents in the future. There's a certain pessimism about the future, but what I want to show you today is that for everybody who calls himself or herself a Christian, you ought to look to the future with joy and hope and excitement 
You ought to be filled with anticipation. Every moment of your present life should be informed by promises to us about our future life. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning in the text, again, of 2 Corinthians 5, the second letter that Paul has written to the church in Corinth. Last week we were in 1 Corinthians, at least two letters that Paul wrote to this church. And Paul here is talking about um, a lot of trouble and affliction that he had been dealing with. And at the end of chapter 4, he's talking about how his outer self is wasting away. He notices his, his physical body kind of breaking down. But, but then he says, that he says, inwardly, he says, we're being renewed because Paul is looking to the future. And he sees what he calls an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. Paul is just radically future-oriented. And even in the midst of the difficulties of his life, he is dominated by this outlook. And that should be the same for you and me also. And so, let's stand, if you're able, and let me read, starting in chapter 5, 1 through 8. And so, this is going to give us a little more detail about what the future looks like for human beings, particularly Christians. 2 Corinthians 5.1, for we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body We are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Holy Spirit, please give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. All right, so as we look to the future here, what I want us to consider is is something that that is great, and then something that is greater, and then something that is greatest. So th- those are the three things. And so let- let's begin with this. First of all, I want you to see that there is great blessing in being a Christian in this life. All right, so let- let's take a look at this. Starting with verse 1, Paul says, We know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So... Paul is referencing a a tent here. So something that's going to be very important for you to understand as we look through this text is a couple of metaphors that Paul is using. And one is this idea of a tent compared to a house. So when he uses that metaphor, he's talking about a tent representing our earthly body and a house is representing a future resurrected body. And the other metaphor, verses 3 and 4, 
is this difference between being naked and being clothed. So when Paul talks about being naked, he's referring to a a soul without a body. When he talks about being clothed, he's talking about the soul being clothed with a body. Okay, so just keep that in mind. We'll we'll unpack that a little more, but I just want to give you that up front as you're considering this text. Uh, It shouldn't surprise us that Paul uses this metaphor of a tent because do you remember what Paul did for his vocation? He was a tent maker. So tents were on his brain, and so he uses this tent as something to point us to our earthly bodies. So what Paul says here in verse 1 is he mentions the possibility of the tent being destroyed. So what he's mentioning there, what he's talking about there is the, the day when he will die. He's thinking of his death, his tent, his earthly body being destroyed, dying. Paul is thinking about death. Paul thought a lot about death. I wonder how much do you think about death? I mean, you know, one of my responsibilities, and Brian's also here as pastors, you know, one of our responsibilities is to get you ready to die. That that's what pastors really ought to be doing. And, and that's what this passage will, will do for us. And the reason that Paul is thinking so much about death is because, again, he's been through so much adversity. He's lived such a hard life. If we go forward to chapter 11, this is the life that Paul lived. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Frequent journeys, danger from rivers and robbers from my own people, danger from Gentiles in the city, in the wilderness, at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil, hardship, through many a sleepless night, and hunger, thirst, often without food, in cold, and exposure. Now you might think, I thought you said that this, that there's great blessing in being a Christian. <laughs> well, see, when you're a Christian, there is no promise that there's going to be an absence of trouble in your life. That's not the promise. That's not what's great about being a Christian. Once you become a Christian, all your troubles go away. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. But one of the things that's great about being a Christian is that there are resources to help you deal with the trouble in and adversity in your lives, which will certainly come. And this is one of the great blessings of being a Christian. Being a Christian, of course, your sins are forgiven. We tell you that every Sunday. Your shame and guilt have been removed because Jesus has paid the penalty for you. You've been adopted into God's family. There is the promise of eternal life. You're justified before His law. All of these are part of the great blessing of being a Christian. But here, what Paul is highlighting is something else, and it is the ability to face trouble and affliction. So let's skip ahead to verses 5 and 6. Paul says this, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee so we are always of good courage. There there are resources in the gospel for you to face the problems and trouble of your life with courage, to not shrink away in fear, but to face them with courage. So here's what Paul is saying. He talks about the Holy Spirit here. That's another blessing of being a Christian. God gives us His Spirit, fills us with His Spirit. Spirit does many things in our lives. But in this case, what Paul is saying is that the Spirit is given as a guarantee. That is, He is given as a a pledge, as like a, a, a deposit or a down payment 
Just like when you buy a house, if you have bought a house, you know you have to put a deposit down. You have to give earnest money, they, they call it. And when you put down that pledge or that deposit, that's your way of saying, I am committed <clears throat> to going through with this house. I am committed to buying this house. It's the bank's way of knowing that you're serious about what you've promised to do. And so what Paul is saying here is that when God gives us the Holy Spirit, it is proof of his commitment to make sure that all of his future promises come true for you. And that's what gives you courage. And Paul says in verse 7, he says that we walk by faith and not by sight. We, we can't see the outcome of these promises. So we believe them because God has commanded them. And we walk in this life by faith. And from that faith in these promises comes courage. Now, this doesn't mean, friends, that you'll never be fearful. It doesn't mean that you won't find some times where your heart just drops down to your feet and you're just overwhelmed with fear. That, that, that's not the promise. That, that's part of our human weakness. That, that's common to humanity, to be fearful when you hear things like, you've got cancer. But what Paul is saying here is that there are resources for you. There is reason for you to have courage if you're a Christian. So let me give you a couple of examples of this. Historically speaking, Christians have been one of the biggest threats to tyrants and dictators. And the reason why is because a dictator can always make this threat. He can say, if you don't do this or you don't do that, I'm going to kill you. Well, for people who only have this life to live, that's a pretty big threat. But for Christians throughout history, when they've heard that threat, what they have said is, I'm not afraid of people who can kill the body and not the soul, because there is an eternal weight of glory in my future. So do what you need to, dictator, but I am not afraid of you. I'm afraid of the one who can kill God, can kill body and soul, and that is God and Christ and so throughout history, you have seen Christians willingly being burned at the stake and going to their deaths because they had a courage to face the persecution that they experienced. But also on a personal basis, <clears throat> I mean, I know an example uh, of this, and uh, I think most of you know a Danny Addington's story. Danny was Carol Addington's husband, and uh, Danny attended church here for a while, but didn't come become a Christian until much later in his life, um, came to believe in Jesus, became a Christian, started reading his Bibles, life was changed, and within a year of his conversion, he learned that he had brain cancer. And so there he was in the hospital, and he knew that his life was ending, and you can ask Carol about the story, but what Carol will tell you is that the oncologist said, I have never seen anyone face death with so much peace as Danny Addington. And the reason why is because he knew where he was going. He knew that he had a right relationship with God. He knew that his sins were forgiven. And so he had courage. And so, friends, this is the promise to all of us. It's one of the great blessings of being a Christian in this life, courage to face difficulty. Here's what Thomas Brooks says. A Christian knows that death shall be the funeral of all his sins, his sorrows, his afflictions, his temptations, his vexations, his oppressions, his persecutions. And he also knows that death shall be the resurrection of all his hopes, his joys, his delights, his comforts, and his contentments. If you know that, 
You can face trouble, even death, with courage. So that's a great blessing in being a Christian in this life, but what we're talking about here today is the future, right? The future of being human. And so the second thing we want to consider is this. There is a greater blessing in being with Jesus in the next life. A greater blessing in being with Jesus in the next life. Let's look to verse 8. Paul says it again. Yes, we are of good courage. And, he says, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Rather be away from my body and home with the Lord. What what Paul is talking about here, going back to verse 1, where he's anticipating the time of his death, where this earthly tent is destroyed... Paul knows that at that point, when he dies, what's going to happen is that his soul is going to depart and go and be with the Lord, away from his body and with Jesus. And so this is just a description of what Christians very often mean when they talk about going to heaven when we die. And this is one of the the hopes that we offer people when we talk about the gospel. You can know that you're going to go to heaven when you die if you believe in Jesus. And here was what Paul is talking about. Body dies, soul departs, and goes to be with Jesus. So there's a lot of, I know, metaphorical language. This text is not not easy to understand, honestly. But there are other passages that kind of make this maybe a little clearer. Philippians 1, 23 and 24. Paul says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So do you see the contrast there? He wants to depart and be with Christ. That would be his soul departing, but it's better to remain in the flesh. That's a reference to his body. He thinks it's better to stay in the body now to bless the church, but what he'd really like is to be with Christ, his soul, to depart from the body and be with Jesus because that's better. So we're talking about a greater blessing here. It's better for his soul to go and be with Jesus. So you see the difference there? Soul leaving the body. That's what he's talking about. Luke 23. Similarly, this is Jesus speaking to the thief on the cross. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, the thief is about to die on the cross himself. Not for sins, but he's being executed. And so he's about to die on the cross. Well, when he, he died on the cross, they took his body down and put it in a tomb. But what Jesus is saying is, even though your body's in the tomb, you will be with me. Your spirit, your soul will leave your body behind and come to be with me in paradise. And so this is what happens at death. Non-Christians, their body goes into the grave. Their souls go away from Jesus to a place called, a place of torment, a place of darkness, But Christians, when they die, their body also goes into the grave, cremated. I know there's a number of different ways to bury people today, but for the saint, they go to the grave. But their souls, our souls, your soul, goes to be with Jesus. 
And that is a greater blessing. It's a, it's a, it's a greater place to be than to be here. That's what Paul is saying. It's, it's much better to leave the body and go to be with, with Jesus because in this life our body is weighed down by sin and death and sickness and so many different problems and pains and difficulties. But when your spirit goes to be with Jesus, you're, you're going to be free of all pain and free of all sorrow and free of all sin. And you're going to see Jesus face to face and you're going to be perfect in holiness and you're going to be basking in the light and glory of God. Your spirit is going to be there with Jesus experiencing these things. Paul can't wait for that. You and I ought to look forward to that as well. It is a a greater blessing. Body in the grave, spirit, soul with Jesus. And anybody who has passed away in Jesus, your beloved Christian Mother, father, son, daughter, sister, brother, friends, whoever it is, all that you know and have loved in this life who are in Christ, this describes their situation at this very moment. Their spirit is in the presence of Jesus. But if you were to go to the graveyard and dig up their graves, you'd find their bones there. You'd find their body would be there in the ground. So a lot of people ask questions. Well, what is this? What is this like to have a spirit with Jesus? And where is that? You know, lots of questions about that. But, you know, what, what actually is the spirit, apart from the body, able to do? What is it like? The Bible doesn't give us a, a whole lot of information, but there is a passage that I think is unusually instructive on this. This is Revelation 6. <clears throat> and John says this, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. The, just the souls. So these are souls who have parted from bodies because their bodies had been slain. <clears throat> these are martyrs. They've been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So these are, again, souls, spirits who have departed the body to be with Jesus. So what can we learn from this passage about this state of affairs? Well, one... Notice everything's in the plural. They cried out. Souls in plural. Apparently, souls who are with Jesus don't exist as independent, isolated individuals, but in community with one another. Notice they cry, <coughs> they cry out. So that means that spirits, souls with Jesus are able to communicate. And in fact, during that time, we will still even be prayerful. Because that's what these souls are doing. They're crying out to God. Uh, Notice that they're asking about their blood being avenged. Well, what that suggests is that these souls who are with Jesus have memory of what happened to them in their earthly life. They remember that they shed blood. They remember that they were murdered. They have memory of the past life, but... In addition to that, they seem to be aware that there has been no judgment on those who killed them, and so they're aware to some degree of what's going on on earth. So they're aware of their own past life, they're aware of what's going on earth, and then we also have this question, how long, they say, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood, which suggests they have some sense of the passing of time. How, how long before you do something? 
They know nothing's been done yet. Now, this is really instructive, I think, for this next point. Because what we seem to be learning here is that the souls who are with Jesus in paradise realize that there's something future yet to happen. A judgment is coming. Their souls are with Jesus, but that final judgment has not happened yet. And what that suggests is that they know that they are in a temporary place. The theologians call this the intermediate state. See, when we talk about going to heaven when we die, almost every one of us, and I'm guessing a large majority probably of people in this room, think that when the Spirit leaves the body and goes to be with Jesus, then that's it. I mean, that's that's the way it's going to be forever and ever and ever. But I don't think that's what the Scripture teaches here. These souls that are aware of something else happening. Now, if we look back to our text, we see Paul, I think, kind of filling this out a little more. Verses 2 and 4, he kind of says similarly the same thing here. He says, for in this tent we groan, he says, verse 2. Verse 4, while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. So, what, what is he what is he groaning for? Is he just groaning for this time when his soul will be released from his body? No, because look at verse 2. For in this tent we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. He doesn't want to be found naked. Remember what I said earlier, nakedness is soul without body. What Paul is saying is that's not really my chief hope that I would be naked, that I would only be a soul. Verse 4, he goes on, while we're still in this tent, we groan, not that we would be unclothed, not that we would be without a body, but that we would be further clothed, he says, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. What is mortal? That's a reference to his body, and what he's looking forward to is this day when what is mortal, what will be destroyed, the earthly tent will be swallowed up in eternal life. Paul is looking forward to something else. There is something better beyond just going to be with Jesus. I don't mean that to denigrate how wonderful it will be to be with Jesus. But it's like when you go to funerals, very often what people will say about the person who has passed away is they will say, he's in a better place now. And if that person is a Christian, well, we can certainly say that. But here's what we would have to add to that. Yeah, he's in a better place, but he's not in the best place. That there's, there's something more. So that brings us to the third point. The greatest blessing is being resurrected when Jesus returns. So let's go back to verse 1. If we know, for we know, <clears throat> that if the tent, which is our heavenly, excuse me, our earthly home is destroyed... Paul goes on and says, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands that is eternal in the heavens. He, he thinks of his current body as a, as a tent. Uh, I, you know, I don't know how many of you are fans of camping. Um, it's not my really favorite thing to do. But on, on the occasion where I have camped and, and I have uh, slept in a tent... I can tell you that pretty much all I thought about before I drifted off to sleep was my house. My, my warm bed at home that was strong and sturdy and could protect me from the elements. 
but for that night at least, okay, I have to stay in this tent. That's kind of the metaphor that Paul is drawing here. He's saying, I'm in my tent, but I'm looking forward to this eternal house, not made with hands, hands, a, a house created by God that is eternal, that is so much better than living in this tent. He's looking to his resurrected body. That's the greatest blessing that is promised in the gospel. So when is this going to happen? You don't get your resurrected body when you die on this earth. When you die on this earth, your spirit goes to be with Jesus, your body goes in the grave. There is no Christian who has passed into the next life who is clothed in a resurrected body. It hasn't happened. And it won't happen until, look at these two texts, Philippians 3, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await. We're waiting for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when He comes again, He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. When Jesus comes again, that's when our body is raised. Uh, Jesus says this in John 6, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. The last day when Jesus comes again. That's when the resurrection happens. And that's the greatest blessing that we long for. So I don't mean to split hairs here, but we probably shouldn't be saying, when you die, you'll go to be with Jesus forever. It's just a little misleading. What we should say is, when you die, you'll go to be with Jesus temporarily, where you will await your resurrected body when Jesus returns. That's, that's the promise. So, as a way of illustrating this, you know, let, let's imagine that you live here in, in Muncie, Yorktown, and you have a beautiful home that you have inherited in the Bahamas. And, and you can't wait to get to that home. But you're going to fly there. You're going to get on a plane in Indianapolis, and you're going to fly to the Bahamas, but you're going to go through Miami. But when you get to Miami, you, you actually really love going to Miami. You've been there before. It's a beautiful city. You have lots of friends and family there. And so you're actually going to stay there in Miami for a little while and enjoy your time there. And then from there, you're going to go on to the Bahamas where your house awaits you. So you go to the ticket counter at the Indianapolis airport, and they say, where are you going? You don't say Miami. You say, I'm going to the Bahamas because the Bahamas are my final destination. That's where my permanent home is. That's what I'm longing for the most. Yeah, going to Miami is great. Spirits departing and being Jesus is great. It's wonderful. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to denigrate that at all. It's just, it's just not best. It's not final. It's not permanent. This is the future, friends, of being human. It's not waiting for the transhumanists <laughs> to download our brains into a computer or to splice together our DNA with animals. We're not relying, we're not waiting on science to try to figure out a way to save us. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. That's our hope. That, that's what Advent is about. We're, we're waiting for Jesus, who, after paying for our sins on the cross, was raised from the dead. And the promise is that the same Spirit who raised Him from the dead will give life to your and my mortal bodies, and that's when we'll be fully human. 
you're not fully human. A spirit apart from a body is an abnormality. It's not the way God intended it. Remember when God created Adam? He didn't create a spirit first and then put a body on him. He created a body and then filled the body with a spirit. Human beings have always been soul and spirit together, as Randy Alcorn says. We are not essentially spirits who inhabit bodies, but we are essentially as much physical as we are spiritual. We cannot be fully human without both a spirit and a body, and that's what's promised to us in the resurrection. So, what, what will those resurrection bodies be like, right? So, same kind of question we ask about the intermediate state. What will it be like when our souls are with Jesus? What will our resurrected bodies be like? We don't have a whole lot of information to, to go on. There's a lot we could say here, I suppose, but I, I can say this, that there will be no cancer or COVID or arthritis or asthma. There will be no depression or bipolar disorder or dementia or Alzheimer's. There will be no gender dysphoria or same-sex attraction or lust or sexual immorality. There will be no body shaming or obesity or anorexia or insecurity about the way you look. I mean, that's a good promise, isn't it? The day is coming when you're not going to be insecure about the way you look. You won't be insecure about how tall or short you are or any of your physical features or how heavy or thin you are. All those insecurities will be gone and you'll be perfectly happy with the way you look. You're going to be happy with your resurrected body. I promise you. Can I tell you how old you're going to be? No, I don't know. <laughs> are you going to be able to fly? You know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. But you won't be disappointed. You'll be happy with your resurrected bodies. Um, <clears throat> John, Johnny Erickson Tata, uh, some of you know about her. She became a paraplegic, quadriplegic, actually quadriplegic in a swimming accident. She jumped into, I think it was a river or a lake, and it was more shallow than she thought. And so... Um, she has no feeling from her shoulders down. So she's been a quadriplegic for many years. And she writes this. She says, I, with <clears throat> shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness. No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, hearts, and minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. So you might be going through sickness now. You might be going through depression. You might be sick of your body. Trust Jesus. There's a promise. A new body is coming. This, this promise is not to just everybody, friends. This promise is only to those who have turned from their sin and trust in Jesus. Jesus says this in John 5, that the day is coming when all the tombs, everybody in their tombs are going to hear his voice, and they're going to come out, some to life and some to judgment. Everybody's going to be resurrected, <laughs> but not everybody resurrected to life. If you want to be resurrected to life and not to condemnation and judgment, you need to trust in Christ. Take Him as your Savior and your Lord. There's a woman named Florence Chadwick, 1952, a swimmer, and she left an island in the Pacific Ocean and intended to swim through the ocean to reach the shore of California. And so she had, I think she had crossed the English Channel at one time, so she's swimming through the Pacific Ocean. She'd been in the water for 15 hours, 
and she just started getting really tired. And the fog was really heavy, and so she didn't really know where she was going. There was a boat coming alongside, and, and she said, I, I can't do it. And so they pulled her up out of the water into the boat, and then they found they were like a half mile from shore. And so she was commenting on this later, and she said, while I was swimming, all I could see was fog. If I could have seen the shore, I think I would have made it. So friends, keep your eyes on the shore. Keep your eyes on the future. Keep your eyes on what is ahead. Keep your eyes on what God has promised. Don't shift your eyes from this glorious promise. The future promises you, if you're a Christian, that when you part from this life, you'll go to be with Jesus. That is better. But you will also receive a resurrected body when Jesus comes again, and that is what is best. And so we say, Jesus, come quickly. God, thank you for the promise of your word, the hope of a resurrected body. What an exciting thing. Lord, I pray that this wonderful promise for our future would transform the way we live in the present for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.